Luke 24, 13 through 27. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself, the word of the Lord. this on? No? Can you hear me? Yeah. Hey, there it is. <clears throat> cool. Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Tim Price. I'm one of the pastoral interns here at Central West Inn, um, and if I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, I would love the opportunity to do that, so please uh, come say hi to me. Um, if you're new here, or if you haven't been here in the last couple of weeks, we've been going through a series on the Bible. You'd hope. Um, but we've been doing a series on the Bible called The Book, kind of big, overarching, what is the Bible kind of thing. And Matt actually started us out by teaching us why we need the Bible. And then last week, he taught on how the Bible is God's Word, how God speaks to us through the Bible. So if you've been following along, you might be at the place where you're wondering, okay, I need the Bible. I see that the Bible is God's word, how he speaks to us through the Bible. And you might be at the place where you're thinking, but what is it? What is the Bible? Um, because a lot of times we don't really know the answer. Maybe if I asked you what is the Bible and you're a well-rehearsed Christian and you say, oh, well, the Bible is God's word, of course. And then I asked you, well, okay, what is God's word? What's your answer? Is it 
a moral philosophy? Is it a list of rules? Is it a way of living? Is it a bunch of collected stories that help us live? What is it that we need? Or what is it that God wants to provide us with through his own mouth? Because a lot of times, I think we just don't really know what to do with the Bible. It's pretty big. I remember uh, being in high school. I was not a Christian. And my dad gave me a Bible for my birthday once. And I just remember thinking, okay, first of all, this is a huge book. <laughs> and it has tiny print. And like, am I just supposed to read it? I remember thinking, I don't even know what this is. But even for those of us who've been Christians maybe for a long time, um, the Bible can be kind of a daunting thing to open up and read. It can be kind of confusing. It's pretty big. There's a lot going on in there. Um, maybe sometimes we get uh, in these routines where we read a chapter a day in the Bible and we're looking for it to help us make a decision, or maybe we read it looking for some experience that's going to help us get through the day, and we read a chapter a day, and then we just don't get that, and we're left frustrated, and maybe we give up and then try again a few weeks or months later. Um, Bible's big. There's a lot going on in it. Um, you read it, Jesus says weird stuff sometimes, and then there's the Old Testament, what do we do with that? Most of us have no idea. I think we just wait for the pastor to preach a sermon series on some of it. Um, and that's kind of how we approach it sometimes. The Bible has been pretty severely misunderstood for most of its existence. It's been misunderstood throughout history on a big scale and individually we misunderstand the Bible. And that has had some pretty awful repercussions. Because what you believe about a thing's essence determines how you treat that thing and what implications it has on your life. What you believe about a thing's essence will determine how you treat that thing and what implications it has on your life. And that's why we're going to talk about what the Bible is today. Because it's important. So, what is the Bible? I will tell you. The Bible is a story. The Bible is a story. Now, it's more than a story. There's a lot going on in it, and there's certainly more things in there than just a story. But in an overarching, big, aerial view that we're going to be taking today, the Bible is a story. And it is a true one. It's a true story, but it is a story. And in this morning's passage, you have these two disciples who have really misunderstood the story. They've severely misunderstood it. Now, they only had the Old Testament at this point, but misunderstanding the story can cause damage to us individually and in our communities. So today we're going to hit on some pretty big, overarching points about the Bible and how it's a story. So first we're going to see how the Bible is a story. That's our first point, and we're going to spend the most time there today, that the Bible is a story. And then we're going to dive into it a little bit more. In our second point, we're going to see that the Bible is a story about God and his relationship to his people. And then we're going to see that the Bible is a story that Jesus is the hero of. So it's a story. It's about God and his relationship to his people. It's a story that Jesus is the hero of. Okay? So the Bible is a story. When these two disciples say in verse 21, we thought he was the one who would redeem Israel. We thought he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They already had a working idea of how the story should go. They had an idea of their scriptures and how they were supposed to be inserted, how things were ought to go. 
They thought God would redeem Israel because of the righteousness of the nation of Israel. But we know that they misunderstood this because Jesus says to them how foolish you are and how slow you are to believe all the prophets have spoken. And Jesus explains to them how the Old Testament, or their entire scripture at this point, points to himself. And he does that by using Moses and the prophets. Okay, so Moses and the prophets. When Jesus says that, he's talking about all their scripture, your entire Old Testament. When Jesus says Moses and the prophet, that's your entire Old Testament. And Jesus is showing them that they've misunderstood the scripture. And not just misunderstood the story, but misunderstood even that it is a story. You see, many Jewish people at this time believed that God was going to restore the nation of Israel from Roman occupation. They were under the occupation of Rome, and they thought God was going to deliver them if they were righteous enough as a nation. This is how the Pharisees actually became the heroes of their day. They're actually not the villains we tend to see them as all the time. Um, A lot of people looked up to them because they said, this is how God's going to rescue us if we follow all these rules. Okay? So Jesus shows them that they've misunderstood the story. But when the Pharisees did this, what they did was put these untenable rules on people, and they took them from the Bible, and they also added their tradition on top of that, that people would try their best to do. So what did they do there? Well, they took the story of the Bible, and they changed its essence. They changed it from a story to a handbook on how to get God to do what you want. They changed the essence from a story to a handbook. Okay. So, how is the Bible a story? How is the Bible a story? Well, a lot of theologians have looked at the Bible and said that the story goes like this. Okay, here's an acronym for you. If you like acronyms, C-R-R-R. It's an easy one. It's creation, rebellion, redemption, and restoration. Okay, this is the story arc of the Bible. What does that mean, and where do they get that? Follow with me here, okay? Remember, we're aerial view, way up, thousand feet in the air. Jesus mentions Moses and the prophets. By Moses, he means the first five books of the Bible. And there we see, in Genesis 1 and 2, the story of creation. Okay, God creates everything. He creates these people, and he creates them to dwell with them. And then, in Genesis 3, they rebel against him. Okay? And what happens when they rebel against God is that every relationship breaks down. The relationship between humans and themselves breaks down. The relationship between humans and other humans breaks down. The relationship between them and nature and the relationship between them and God. Everything starts to fall apart. So you have creation, and then you have rebellion. And then in this passage, we have Jesus. We have a resurrected Jesus. At this point in the story in Luke 24, you have Jesus who has been crucified and raised from the dead, and he's walking with these two guys on the road, and they don't realize it's Jesus. But he has been raised from the dead, and Jesus says to them, didn't the Messiah have to suffer to enter his glory? Now, Christians believe that Jesus' suffering, Jesus' death on the cross, brings redemption. Okay? That's his suffering. And then he talks about his glory. Christians also believe that Jesus is going to come in his full glory and restore all things. So we have creation, rebellion, redemption, and restoration. 
Do you see what that is? It's setting, rising action, climax, and resolution. It's a story. It follows the story arc that we are used to, which is pretty fascinating because it's written by a lot of different authors over thousands of years. And when it's put all together, it's remarkably coherent and stunningly beautiful. The Bible is not a philosophical idea that we give assent to, but a story that captures our hearts. It's not a philosophical idea that we give assent to, but a story that captures our hearts. And I'd like to submit to you that the fact that it's a story is really good news. Why? Because we, as humans, are shaped by stories. We're shaped primarily by stories. That's how we make our decisions and choose the lifestyles that we choose are because of the stories that we believe are true about ourselves and the world. So let me give an example of this. There's a story by a guy named C.S. Lewis. He wrote this book series called The Chronicles of Narnia. And in this story, you have these children. They crawl through a dresser, and they end up in this magical land called Narnia, and there's talking animals, and they become friends with the talking animals, and they have this adventure, and then they go back to their own world. And then they go back to Narnia. So a few books later, maybe it's the next book, they go back to Narnia. And they wash up on this shore. And in Narnia, it's been a very, very, very long time. Time works differently. So it's been a very long time in Narnia. Kids wash up on the shore. They're lost. And they see a bear. They say, oh, let's go ask the bear for directions. So one of the kids walks up to the bear. And it's like, hey, bear, can I get some directions? And it turns around, and it's a bear. And it tries to eat her. And it chases the kids. And then this dwarf jumps out, and he chases the bear off. And he's like, why are you trying to talk to that bear? And they're like, what? I thought I'd just thought he'd give us directions. And so they're like, well, what's going on? And eventually the kids figure out that the animals in Narnia don't talk anymore. And so they start asking questions. They're like, well, what happened? Why don't the animals talk anymore? Was there some horrible curse? Was there some amazing, terrible spell that was cast on all the animals to make them beasts again? And the dwarf says, oh, okay. He says, no, actually... What happened was people just called them dumb beasts for long enough, eventually they started to believe it. I thought, oh my gosh, that's sad. But it gets at something very profound, which is how shaped we are by words and stories that are told about us. And I think a lot of us can relate to that. I know that I can. We all come in here with ideas of who we are as people and how the world functions. And most of those are shaped not by rational cognition, but through the stories we believe. So let me ask you this. When you go home and you sit around the dinner table with your family or your friends, people who've known you a very long time, and they start telling stories, what are the stories they tell about you? Are they always about you being a clown? Are they always about you making mistakes? Are they always about you being awesome? Are they always about you making good grades or being an athlete or just being this incredibly nice person? What are the stories that are told about you? Because I guarantee you that those stories have shaped your life and your decisions more than any rational thinking has ever done for you. And so if you're like me, you might come in here this morning in need of a better story. 
You might be in here this morning in need of a better story for your life. And the good news is that God gives us one. Because he knows how we're wired. He knows how we as human beings inhabit this world. He knows how we function and how we make decisions. And we aren't always these rational, autonomous beings that we like to think that we are. Not that that's a bad thing. I hope you're rational. Um, but this is important. We're shaped by stories. We're shaped by stories. And how does the fact that the Bible is a story help us today? Well, if stories have the power to shape, they also have the power to reshape. They have the power to shape our minds and our hearts and our lives and our actions, and they have the power to reshape them, okay? So we've got to learn the story. I think on two levels, we have to learn the stories that have been told about us, the stories that we believe are true about us, like in the confession when Eric mentioned, do you wake up and you hear that shame and that guilt? Is that the first thing you hear when you wake up and look at yourself in the morning? God gives us a better story. One that tells you that you belong to him, that you are precious. And so we have to learn the story of God also to see this. And to be able to take the stories that we believe about ourselves and compare them with the story that God is telling. See if they match up. And that takes a long time. It takes counseling. That takes reading a lot of the Bible. Um, it takes a very long time. So we also have to be patient and kind to ourselves as well. Um, but one thing I would recommend to help us get enmeshed in this story and to understand that it is a story and a coherent one, I would recommend this. Read the entire Old Testament in the Jesus Storybook Bible. <laughs> it's a children's Bible. And some of you are nodding because you've read it, and you're like, oh yeah, this thing is awesome. Um, it just does such a good job helping you see how the Old Testament is coherent, particularly on the point of Jesus. Um, it does a really good job of helping you with sort of the foreshadowing of it all. So when Jesus says how slow you are to believe all the prophets have said, read the Old Testament in this Jesus storybook Bible. It doesn't actually take that long, and it will help you get at some of that foreshadowing, and it will help you see sort of this big picture narrative of what's actually going on in the story of the Bible. So that's just one thing I would recommend to you. Okay, so the Bible is a story, but what is it about? What's the big picture? Remember, big aerial view looking a thousand feet down over this. So I probably should have said this earlier, but if you look in verse 13, it says, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Jesus walked with them for seven miles. And Jesus knew these guys, probably for a couple of years, taught them, their ancient Jewish people who probably knew their Old Testaments pretty well, and Jesus walked with them for seven miles. Let's say 15 minutes a mile, that's like two hours. Okay, so we don't have two hours we're doing more than one topic. I'm guessing you don't know your Old Testament as well as an ancient Jewish person, and I'm not Jesus. So <laughs> we're going to have some questions by the end of this. Just remember, we're way up here today, looking at the big kind of themes of the Bible. So what's one of them? Well, the Bible is about God and his relationship to his people. The Bible is about relationship. In the first book of Moses in Genesis, we talked about creation. 
God creates humans so that he can dwell with them. It actually says he walked in the cool of the day in the garden with them. He created them to be with them. And then, of course, the rebellion happens, and that relationship breaks down. Okay, so you have creation, rebellion, and the Bible could have ended right there. God could have been like, okay, oh, that didn't work. Um, But it doesn't. Instead, what we have is God binds himself to his creation through a promise. God binds himself to his creation through a promise. So right after the rebellion, in Genesis 3, God says to the serpent, who represents the devil, who is the devil and represents evil, I will put enmity between you and the woman's offspring. He says, you will bruise his heel, but I will crush, he will crush your head. He said, right from the beginning after the first human failure, I'm going to get rid of this evil. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to crush the serpent's head. I'm going to destroy the destroyer of relationships. And that is the thrust of the biblical narrative. That's how the Bible starts. Things are good, relationships break down, and God says, I'm going to do something about it. And that is the question that the beginning of the Bible begs, and the story sets out to answer that question. How can we dwell with God again? How can this relationship be restored? And God promises that he's going to do it. God says he's going to fix it. And he makes this promise to his creation. And God makes these promises throughout the Bible. A lot of times they're called covenants. So that's another word for promise. And theologians have seen that these promises, these covenants, come a handful of times in the Old Testament, and they see that there is a formula to the promise. There's a covenant formula, and it happens seven significant times in the Old Testament, probably more, but there are seven significant times that the covenant formula happens in the Old Testament. You want to know what it is? I will be your God, and you will be my people. That's the formula of God's promise. I will be your God, and you will be my people. The Bible is a story about a God who is determined to dwell with his people. So how do we see this? Well, the disciples in this passage, they say, in verse 21, we thought he was the one who would redeem Israel. They thought God was just going to set them up as a nation again, like they were in the Old Testament. Get them out from Roman occupation and set them up and give them their independence. But they'd forgotten the point of God making Israel in the first place, which was to be a blessing to all nations. You see this in one of the promises that God makes to Abraham in the beginning of the Bible. He says, your descendants, Israel, will be a blessing to all nations. And that's in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. He says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. When God says, I will be your God and you will be my people, he's saying, you will show the world what it means to be in relationship with me. That was their calling. That was their purpose for being a nation. So these disciples actually misunderstand God's character because they left the relational part out of the story. 
And Jesus is reminding them that redeeming Israel must have meant a lot more than just setting them up as a nation so they could have their independence, but so that they could dwell with their God and show the world what it meant to be in relationship with him. It meant blessing and restoration of the broke-down relationships. So what happens when we leave the relational aspect out of the story? What happens when we miss the story and miss the character, the main character, God, in this story? There's a few traps we can fall into when we pick and choose uh, what we want to read out of the Bible. Uh, There are a lot, but I'm going to hit on two today. Uh, The first one is kind of like the disciples in this passage and the Pharisees, which is thinking that the Bible is simply a, a moral philosophy or a handbook on how to live. Now, certainly, the Bible is a moral guide. There are lots of rules, and there are lots of ways to live in the Bible. We see this all over the place, okay? But if that's all that it is, then we can fall into the same trap that the Pharisees or that these disciples have fallen into, which is sort of an elitism, thinking that if I follow these rules, then God will have to do what I say. Now, for us, it's probably a little different, whereas they're saying, get us out from under Roman occupation. We're a little bit more individualistic in sort of a health and wealth kind of way. If I follow these rules, God will give me what I want. It's just consumerism, right? Uh, So it's kind of the same, but a little bit more individualized. And at that point, what then is God? Is he someone you really have a relationship with? No, he's just a cosmic vending machine who takes currency of good deeds. And that's something I really don't want to have any part of. I don't think I need Christianity for that. I think a lot of people have left Christianity because that's what they thought that it was. So yeah, there are rules in the Bible, but that's not all that it is. And the rules are caught up in a story. Okay? And the story doesn't allow you to put God in your pocket with your good deeds simply doesn't allow that. And then, of course, if you're not any good at following the rules, that's a whole different story that's ruled by shame and guilt, right? And so we need the story to help us understand. But another way of misunderstanding this, so so we probably, what we did as Christians in America, we knew that that way was wrong in a lot of ways, and we swung way too far the other way into the trap of what's called cheap grace. Cheap grace. That's like just going to the Bible to look for the blessings and the promises. Now again, there are lots of blessings, lots of promises. They're really, really good. They're awesome. We just talked about some of the promises. But if that's all that it is, if you're just going to the Bible to find those little places, maybe in Romans where it says, you know, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. If that's all that it is, and we just pick and choose these things out from the story, then the Bible's really not much more than a Hallmark card to help you get through your day. And it shouldn't be that big if that's all it is, right? But that's caught up in a story. But grace is not cheap. And for that reason, we've got to take time learning this long story of how God goes about restoring relationship between him and his creation. So those are things we find in the Bible, but left alone, they do damage to how we live our lives. So the Bible is a story, and it's about God and his relationship to his people, and that runs all the way through the Bible. 
God dwells with his creation in the garden. He walks with Abraham as he begins to establish a nation for himself to be a blessing to all the nations. When Moses leads the people out of slavery from Egypt, God tabernacles with them. So he dwells in a tent with them as they wander through the desert together, and then he dwells in the temple with his people as he sets them up and establishes them as the nation of Israel so that they can be a blessing to all the nations. But of course, Israel fails at this. And Matt spent a lot of time uh, last week teaching us what the prophets do. They teach Israel how to get back on track with their relationship with God, restore them to their purpose of being a blessing to the nations, being in a relationship with their creator. Now this happened a lot. There's a lot of prophets in the Old Testament doing this. Okay, they fail often. So God had to do something. And God promises and keeps his promises. But if you look at the Bible, the relationship between God and his people is pretty marred. It's pretty distant. And although you see God's promises continuing throughout the entire Bible, you also see the relationship between God and Israel getting further and further apart. Okay? So what could he do? And what do I mean by further apart? Um, Let me just sort of explain that. I think this is helpful. So in the Hebrew language, when they want to intensify something, they just repeat it. They just say it twice. So there's one part of the story where Joseph, this guy's thrown into a pit. They say a deep pit, but really it's just a pit pit. The Hebrew language just says pit pit. So when they want to intensify something, they just say it more than once. So you get a lot of these words repeated in the Bible that are doubled. But there's only one word in the Bible that's tripled. Does anyone know what it is? Yeah. It's holy, holy, holy. And it's for God. And holy means separate, other set aside, special. God is so unbelievably far and holy from us in his righteousness and compared to our unrighteousness. The distance is so great and we watch that relationship get more and more severed as the story continues. So what could God do? How could he dwell among us? How, what could he do to dwell in intimacy with his creation again? Because off and on, throughout the Old Testament, you see this holiness dipping down into our reality. But it's nothing quite like him walking with us in the cool of the day in the garden. So that happens, the relationship's ruptured, and then you see this holiness dipping down into our reality throughout the Old Testament. But then what does he do? Something had to be done. That holiness, that complete otherness, And righteousness comes crashing into our existence in the person of Jesus Christ. God becomes a man. And in John 1.14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So last week, Matt gave this example that God is here and he is the creator, and everything he created is in the box. The incarnation of Jesus is God profoundly entering the box, and he does so to fix the ruptured relationship. Because he promised to do it, and he keeps his promises. And that leads us to our last point. So the Bible is a story. It's a story about God and his relationship to his people, and it's a story that Jesus is ultimately the hero of. 
So look again at verse 21. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Okay. These two disciples of Jesus, they already thought someone was coming to redeem Israel. He was the one. Okay. They had an idea that someone was coming to redeem Israel. He was going to be their hero, their savior. But was Jesus the hero in their story? Was Jesus actually the hero of that story? They believed God was going to send a redeemer to deliver them not from sin and death, but from Roman occupation. And why? Because of their own righteousness. Who's the real hero of that story? The story that they're working with says, okay, God's God, he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and I guess he's just set this task for us to fulfill righteousness. And if we can fulfill righteousness, then God will come and deliver us. It's just back to that cosmic vending machine thing, okay? And God is not the hero of that story. And therefore, Jesus says, how foolish. He says, that is really foolish for you to try to fulfill righteousness to get God to rescue you. Because Jesus knows they can't. Jesus knows the distance that has to be bridged between God's holiness and our unrighteousness can only be bridged if God himself does it. And he did. Jesus says, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? We mentioned earlier that Jesus' suffering is our redemption. And maybe you're thinking, how is that heroic? Jesus was led silently uh, and beat beyond recognition. Actually, a prophecy about him in Isaiah 52 says he was marred beyond human recognition. How is it heroic that a man dies on a cross, which is just a tool that Rome used to kill criminals? If that's what makes him a hero, then why? I mean, what is that? God has to become a human and die on a piece of wood so I can be reconciled in relationship to him. How's that heroic? Well, it only is if you see that he has taken your place and died where you deserved the punishment. And that's a hard thing for us. That's a substitutionary sacrifice. And some of you just heard that and were like, what a terrifying phrase. Substitutionary sacrifice. Okay. Um, the idea that a debt has to be paid, and the debt is a life. And Jesus gives his life to pay the debt. And I know we act like we don't really like this idea of substitutionary sacrifice, but I was thinking about this, and I was like, you know what great story has substitutionary sacrifice idea in it? Like every great story. Harry Potter, spoiler alert. (laughs) Gladiator. How about... Batman, every single Marvel movie, every single one, there's like 30 of them. (laughs) That's what a hero does. He lays down his life for others. And interestingly enough, Jesus says that's what a friend does. And ironically enough, Jesus laid down his life not just for his friends, but for his enemies. At the heart of what we believe is a man who dies for his enemies. And that is a story that changes us. It's a pretty consistent theme throughout the Bible 
this idea of substitutionary sacrifice, that this is a necessary thing for the restoration of relationship between God and humanity. And throughout the Bible, God always provides the sacrifice. Now, you may be thinking, are you sure about the Old Testament? Yes. God always provides the sacrifice. When Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden, God provided the sacrifice and then clothed them in animal skins before he sent them out. When Abraham brought his son Isaac up to the mountain to sacrifice him, he says, Dad, where are we going to get the lamb? Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb. And then even the book of Leviticus, it's all about how to do the atoning sacrifice to God. If you read the thing, you will see that everything needed for the sacrifice is provided by God himself. It's very clear. God always provides the sacrifice. And the twist to the story that no one saw coming was that God himself would be the sacrifice. Because he was the only one that could afford to pay the debt. If you look at the New Testament, well, the whole Bible, you see God promising to make things right, and then he promises that in the end he's going to make all things right and restore all these relationships. But if you look in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 1.20, it says, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Why? Because he is the true Israel. Because Jesus fulfilled righteousness. Where we knew we couldn't, Jesus fulfilled the righteousness required by God. He is the one who is going to restore the broken relationships. He is the one who's going to bridge the gap, who has bridged the gap between God's holiness and our unrighteousness. He's the answer to God's promise. And his death and resurrection are the climax of this story. But of course, it isn't the whole story. You can't just have that part. And a lot of us do. A lot of us think Christianity is, I'm a sinner and Jesus saves me. Well, that's rebellion and redemption. But what about creation and what about restoration? How do those inform what we believe about Christianity? Because it doesn't really make a lot of sense and it's kind of just fluff without the whole story. But at the heart of this story is a man who dies for his enemies. And that is a story that changes us. So I want to ask, is Jesus the hero of your story? Is he the one who bridged the gap between you and God? When you say to yourself, oh, I'm a failure, do you see that even if that's true, God has bridged the gap and he has come close to you? to reconcile the broken relationship between God and humanity? Do you see yourself wrapped up in this greater story that God is going to come and redeem all things? Do you see your life as a part of that story? It's hard to do. It takes time, like a lifetime. And I know some of you out there know this story much better than I do. And so we're here together to be together and to learn from each other. So the Bible is a story. It's a story about God and his relationship to his creation and how he's going to go about reconciling that relationship. And it's a story that Jesus is ultimately the hero of.
It's not a moral philosophy, and it's not just a hallmark card that helps us get through the day, but a story about how God rescues his people and wants to dwell with them and is so determined to do so that he would die for us in our place so that we could be reconciled to him. And so my prayer today for us is that we would come to know this story and see that it is a story and how that shapes us and begin to put our own stories and our lives in that story and to see how that shapes the things that we believe. Uh, So please pray with me.